and he says, uh, what, what material or what books uh, you know, can I get to really help me try to begin to put the Bible together? Because just sitting down and reading it on my own, you know, I don't know what I'm doing with it. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, that is a question that so many young Christians ask today, and I'm sure even the ones that don't ask it struggle with it in, internally. You know, how in the world do you make the Bible work for you? Well, let me just say this to you and, and, and preface my time in the book of Hebrews today, and that's where we're at in the book of Hebrews, uh, you want to turn to it, is, you know, God, when you got saved, God never intended for you just to sit down and read your Bible. Now, I know that that's, uh, you know, I know that that's a contradiction of terms of what you hear today, but God understood and knows that when somebody just gets saved or somebody maybe has been saved for a long time but never really gets into the Word of God, when somebody comes to that point in their life where they begin to take the Word of God seriously, God understood that there's no way that you're going to be able to sit down and read it. God never intended you to. God intended you to get part of a New Testament local church and for them to show you how to make the Bible work for you. Nobody on their own ever figured out the Bible. The only people, if you go all the way back through the book of Acts, you'll find that there's a long unbroken chain of men and women taking other men and women through an unending process and teaching them what the Bible is all about and how the Bible works. That's the job of the church. God didn't intend anybody just to sit down, get saved, open up your Bible, and then try to figure it out. There is no way that you will. And I promise you, the devil will get into the details of that very quickly. And either you'll lose interest because you don't know what you're reading and looking for and get bored, or heresy will creep in and uh, you'll try to put two and two together and come up with 12. And, uh, you know, uh, it, there has to be somebody to help you figure out and put the Bible together so there's some kind of rhyme or reason to it when you begin to read it. And that's the job of the church. That's the job of the pastor. That's the job of elders to help men and women, deacons, men and women, leaders in any church, to help them uh, put, the, put the Bible together. Now today, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And let me just say to you, with this book, we now enter into one of the most confusing and misunderstood books in all of the Bible. I don't know of any other book in the Bible. I really don't. I mean, there's some hard books in the Bible that maybe, or at least appear to be hard, to try to figure out that people get, you know, whacked out on. But I don't know of another book that is more confusing and I don't know of another book that is more misunderstood than the book that we're going to study this morning. And you know what? The reality is it's not a very hard book. I have never really understood, well, I guess that's not exactly true. I understand, but I have never really figured out why people just can't come to the conclusion of understanding the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's not a very hard book. It's not a very confusing book as long as you approach it from the same way that we've approached every other book in the Bible. We've already learned through our previous studies, and we took a lot of time to do this, long before we ever even entered into it. And we rehash it almost every Thursday night. And we certainly rehash it on every Sunday because it's one of those things that you've got to get automatically in your mind. And we've already found the systematic process that will work to unlock every book of the Bible. And you should know this very well by now, that the Bible 
is the key to unlocking itself. There is nothing from the outside that you're going to get that's going to help you do it. You can't run off to a Christian bookstore someplace and find all the keys to the Bible, though there are some good books that will help you in those endeavors. You've got to understand that the Bible is the book that God wrote, and He wrote it to you and me, His children. And He kind of put a security system in it. And that security system keeps people who don't want to believe, people who don't want to have the right attitude of heart, people who don't want to do what's right from getting anything out of His Bible. Somebody asked me one time, and I'm asked this question a lot, and you will too, and probably already have been. I've been asked, I don't know how many times, why are there so many churches out there that are different? Why are there so many preachers preaching different things? Why are there so many people that believe different things? And the answer to that is very simplistic and very basic. The answer is because God has locked His Bible up and you have to follow through a certain procedure to get the truth out of that Bible. And when you don't, man then begins to make up his own ideas using the Bible as a base text, but even though they have nothing to do with the Word of God. In other words, I'm simply saying this. The book of Hebrews is one of the most confusing and misunderstood in the books in the Bible, if not the most. But you know what? It doesn't have to be. In reality, it is no harder than any other book, and you're going to see today that we're going to lay this book out piece by piece, and you're going to leave here today understanding, and if you take the CD and you work it through, uh, chapter by chapter and how this thing works through, uh, you're going to come away understanding a book in the Bible that 99.9% .9 of God's people in this world do not even begin to approach because of the fact of the way they're taught. And this book, you don't teach this book. You let this book teach itself by the principles that you already know. And as I said already, the Bible is the key itself to unlocking itself. Now, before we go any farther, we want to briefly review, uh, and, we, and for new people, too, that may not have been here when we said that, some basic things we want to remember. Uh, we've talked about this from day one, and I've reiterated these things over and over again, and you've got to keep them in your mind. First of all, we talked about the fact that the, not all of the Bible is written directly to you. Now, when you talk like that, then people, you know, they get, they get a little nervous because they don't understand what you're saying. Uh, what I'm saying is this. All the Bible is for you. There is something to learn from Genesis to Revelation for everybody who reads it. But let's not kid ourselves. Not everything is written directly to you. You know how I know that? Because there's a certain group of people that were told to go out and sacrifice a lamb. You don't. There were certain people that were told that they couldn't eat anything from grapes. You're not. You see, in the Bible, not everything is directly to you. One of the things that you have to learn about the Bible, and this is where I put so much emphasis, is you have to be able in time to know what is written to you versus what is written for you. Being able to understand that everything in the Bible has something that you learn from it, but not all of it is directly written to you that you can apply directly to your life, and when you try to do that, then you get into problems. We know this also, the second thing. Three different people groups addressed in the Bible. We know the Bible has portions of it that are written to the Jew. We know the Bible has portions of it that are written to the church, the body of Christ. 
Now, we know the Bible has portions of it that are written to Gentiles. And you've got to remember that the importance of understanding any book, any chapter, anything at all about the Bible is, first of all, understanding the context of what you're reading. Whether it be a passage, whether it be a book, or whether it be a subject. And this is why, if you're not careful, there's lots of verses that are written into the Bible that deal with the tribulation period. Now, is that written directly to me? No. Who's it written to? The nation of Israel. But is it written for me? Yes, because I, as a member of the body of Christ, need to understand the concept of the tribulation even though I ain't going through it. You see how it works? You've got to be able to put it in context. And putting in context simply means you understand who this is written to. I ask myself this question every time I get into the Bible on a one-on-one -on -one personal time that I'm studying. I'm always asking myself, first thing I say when I read something is, who's he writing this to? What is the context? You see, God has a different plan for each group, the Jews, the Gentile, and the church. That's why you'll find in the Bible three different concepts, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And they all three line up to these three people groups addressed in the Bible. And then you should remember this, and we talked about this early on, that the three most dangerous books in the Bible, we've already studied two of them. I told you the three most dangerous books in the Bible were Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. We studied Matthew, and I showed you that. We studied Hebrews, and I showed you, or Acts, and I showed you that. And now today we're going to come into the next dangerous book in the Bible, and that is the book of Hebrews. Every heresy that I know of, every heresy on planet earth that comes in and either sends people to hell because of its bad teaching or confuses God's people that they never grow in God uh, comes out of one of these three books. Simple as that. These three books will break your back spiritually if you don't learn them. And the reason why? Because these three books are the key to putting all of the rest of your Bible together in the New Testament. All of the New Testament is built around you understanding where these three books fall into line. Because these three books are what we commonly call transitional books in the Bible. Now let me explain that big word. A transitional book is a book where God is transitioning from one place, one dispensation, one time to another. Easiest one to understand would be the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God transitioned. He went from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The book that deals with that transition is the book of Matthew. So therefore, you have to be careful with Matthew because things are changing. And if you don't see the changes that are happening, you're going to start to believe that Matthew is written directly to you. Truth of the matter is that the church is not even in effect when Matthew is written. The events there deal with the nation of Israel, but it's bringing you through a transition from one period, the Old Testament, to a New Testament scenario. So it's, it's a time that things are changing. Then you have the next book that we already studied, is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is another transitional book. And basically speaking, when we talked about this when I laid it out, the book of Acts is a transition from the nation of Israel, which predominated the Old Testament, 
to the body of Christ, the church, which is going to be predominant in the New Testament. You see, they go together, but the transitions are different. In fact, you want a very simple way to lay out the New Testament? You get this down and the New Testament's a piece of cake. New Testament has 27 books in it. Here's how you break it down. It's so easy, it's, it's, it ought to be illegal. Matthew transitions you from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The book of Acts transitions you from the nation of Israel to the church. Now, after the book of Acts, you have ten books. I mean, you have more than ten, but some of them are written to the same churches. Paul writes to seven churches, starting with the book of Romans. And after he writes to seven churches, then he writes to three New Testament Christian men. We just finished studying them. He writes to Timothy, he writes to Titus, and he writes to uh, Philemon. And uh, by the way, the Greek word Philemon is phileon, which when you understand the Greek word there, means there's a lot of meat in that book. I turned on TV this morning, I heard a guy greeking all over the place, and I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I got on my Greek Hebrew lexicon, and that's good because their only lexicons are only in Hebrew, but I got a special one. And I found the word Philemon comes, we get our word Philemon. And then I just took the next step that there must be a lot of meat in that book. I don't see anything wrong with my reasoning. What's wrong with you? Then you have the next set of books is Romans to Philemon, the stakes book. And those are seven churches and three individuals. In those books, you find the doctrinal meat for the New Testament church. That's those books, Romans to Philemon. They are the bedrock doctrine, the meat, the strong meat to the church. Then you have where we're at today, the book of Hebrews to the book of Jude. You see, where Matthew transitions you from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the book of Acts brings you from the nation of Israel to the church, and then you have the body of teaching, Romans to Philemon, then Hebrews to Jude begins the translation, transition from the church into the tribulation period. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is the capstone of the Bible that puts it all together. Now, can I get all kinds of material out of all of these books? Sure I can. Man, I can get into Matthew, I can get into Acts, and I can get into Hebrews, and I can learn all kinds of stuff. But the problem is you've got to be careful applying it to you directly. Because I've already said, every heresy within and without of the body of Christ comes from one of these three books. And the most amazing thing to me, and I've watched it all my life, is to watch a New Testament pastor try to put Hebrews into the church age and teach the verses of how it goes. And it's an incredible thing. Now here's the first mistake that people make with the book of Hebrews, and you need to learn this, and we're going to come through this thing and lay it out. The first mistake they make is about the title itself. When Paul wrote, he wrote the first Corinthians, second Corinthians, he wrote the Romans, he wrote the <coughs> church at Ephesus, he wrote the first church at Thessalonica, and then he wrote the three New Testament Christians. Suddenly we come to a book that isn't to a church, it isn't to a New Testament Christian. It just simply says Hebrews. Now the standard teaching is, you see, when you don't know what to do with it, 
and you're not very proficient in the Bible, you make it up as you go along. So the standard teaching is today that the book of Hebrews was written to nice Jewish New Testament Christians. See? They call them Hebrew Christians. They call them Jewish Christians. And of course, uh, you know, even today, you can turn on the radio and you'll hear the, I don't know if it's still on, but I used to hear the Christian Jewish hour. Now, all that is fine, and I don't have a problem with it, but here's the number one problem with the church. And I've said this before. Number one problem with the church is bad doctrine. Now, the problem with taking the Hebrews and making it early Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians is one little problem, and it's called the Bible. And where most people will just sidestep it and go on, I'm afraid I can't sidestep it. And the reason why I know that the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, wasn't written to Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians because those people never really existed in history. Because my Bible, remember your Bible? It's a big book like this with black covers and little gilt pages. The Bible says in Galatians 3, verse 28, and Colossians 3, 3, 11, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So you can't have Jewish Christians. Because in Christ, they're neither Jew nor Gentile. They're only Christians. So the first mistake they make is they make this book and they see Hebrews. So they don't know what to do with it. So they make it early Hebrew Christian. Early Jewish Christians. And of course, the problem with that is there's no such animal. Because in Christ, <coughs> the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. When you get saved, and if you're a Jew right now, and you're Jewish descent, and you get saved, you're no longer a Jew. You don't go around and say, I'm a Christian Jew. No longer I go around and say, I'm a, oh, hi, I'm a Christian Gentile. Because in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, that is a doctrinal teaching that whether you like it or not, it stands. And just like any other doctrine, when you violate it, it'll come back and bite you. You got to understand the Bible dictates itself, and in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So we don't have Jewish Christians here. We just don't, because they never existed. And of course, remember now, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scriptures given by inspiration and is profitable for the first thing, number one thing, doctrine. Now the next thing we see about this, and it just gets worse from here. Because once you miss the title and you try to make it Hebrew Christians and then you spend the rest of your time trying to take scriptures, passages, or old chapters and, and cut them to fit into the church age. Now let me tell you how you know when you properly interpret a passage of scripture. And maybe you can't get to this right now, but in time you will. Because maybe you don't know all the ins and outs of it. But it's real simple. Here's how you know that you do it right. Now, I understand that no scriptures of any private interpretation. I know that. I know that I, just like anybody else, do not have a right to go to the Bible, read a verse, and says, this is what it means because I think this is what it means. And, of course, that's exactly what they do by naming the book of Hebrews Jewish Christians. They don't follow the doctrine of their own book. They don't know what to do with it, so they simply make it an early Jewish book written to Jewish Christians because it fits. But it doesn't fit. And here's how you know when you got it right. Whatever subject, whatever doctrine, whatever book, whatever, whatever you're learning, whatever you're studying, whatever you're teaching, when you're done with it, 
you can't have anything, you can't have any pieces sticking out. You know, I'm, I, I'm not a very good mechanical person. And I don't care what I buy. When it comes and it has to be assembled, I'm going to tell you right now, I will have parts left over. I'm telling you. Make of that what you want. I, myself, I'm in denial. And I will always tell myself, they put those extra parts in in case some were lost. Or, if that doesn't work, well, that stupid guy that packed this put the parts in for some other thing that I didn't have the model for. See? No. Truth of the matter is, I am stupid when it comes to following directions. I'm the only guy that could put a model plane together growing up, and you couldn't tell it was a plane when I was done. It could land upside down or right side up. It didn't make any difference. I'm not good at those things. And when I get something, hey, it goes to get... In fact, I don't even look at the directions anymore. I look at the obvious pieces that I got to have to make it work. And the rest of it, I don't need it. You see? If, it does, if, 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 you, if you can't get all the pieces in where it doesn't turn right, you just pick it up and move it where you want it. And a lot of people approach the Bible that way. And you know what? When it comes to the Bible, you can't have any pieces left over with what you're teaching. It all has to fit together cohesively. And when you come to the book of Hebrews, if you've got verses that look weird, and when you try to put them into the church, become weirder, you better go back and read your direction. I'm going to show you some of them. We don't have time to go through them all, but I'm going to show you some of them. But let me just give you this right now. Let me give you a definition of the book of Hebrews so you have it, and then we'll come back and work on it from there. First of all, here, we, here it is. So simple. The book of Hebrews is written to the Jews who miss the rapture of the church. It's as simple as that. And you're going to fully understand and see that by the time I'm done. So I have no business making a statement like that without because I'm going to come back and support it for you and show you how it works. It's a book that is written to the nation of Israel, the Jews, who missed the rapture of the church. And that's why when Paul writes, he writes to the saints or to the churches, or he writes to Titus, Timothy, or Philemon. When the writer of Hebrews writes, which is commonly referred to as Paul, and I'm sure that he was, if there's any question, all you got to do is read the last chapter, and it's his book. You've got to understand that the book of Hebrews is a transitional book out of the church age. Just like Matthew transitions it in, Acts brings you into the church, Hebrews brings you out of the church back into the tribulation period, as does First and Second Peter, James, and Jude. We'll get into those when we get into those books. Now, here's a way to remember it, easy way. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, you know what he did in the book of Ephesians? He defined in the book of Ephesians what the church was. Who doesn't know that? We know that. He divined in the book of Ephesians, he defined the church to you and me. You know what he does in the book of Hebrew? He writes the book of Hebrews to divine Israel to the Jews. Same thing, except it's not written to me, it's written to the Jews. Now, can I learn from that? Oh, there is so much in the book of Hebrews that I can make inspirational applications to in my life, but I've got to understand that directly. If I start taking these verses out and putting them in, I'm in trouble. And then, then the next step, you know what you got to do? When you got pieces left over and you don't know what to do with them, instead of admitting that you're wrong, you know what you do? 
you say it's a mistranslation or it's a mistake in your Bible and God made the mistake, but you didn't. Oh, how arrogant can it be? Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't know what else to tell you. He writes the book of Ephesians to define the church to you and me. He writes the book of Hebrews to define Israel to the Jew. And I learn about it too, but it written to me. Now I'm going to show you a few. Now we're going to have to work through our Bibles now. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Now watch this. Here's one. It says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which was at first begun to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? Now here's the first problem you got. And let me just say, it's absolutely impossible to put this into the church. Now, I know we all use it in the sense of soul winning. How, I've said it myself. I've been preaching and I've been talking to lost people and I'll say to lost people, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, I've done that. I've heard preachers do that. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is when you take this verse as it stands and try to stick it into the church, the we here is not unsaved people. The we here is somebody who's already in the church that he's writing to. When he says, how shall we escape He's talking about the people that he's writing this to, the Hebrew people that he's speaking to. How shall we escape? Now, it can't be me because the day I got saved as a New Testament Christian, I overcame and I escaped. I'm not worried about escaping anywhere except out of the house when I get potato chips on the floor and Barb comes in the front doors, I'm going out the back because I know I'm going to get yelled at. But escaping? Uh-uh. I escaped the day I got saved. And let me tell you something. The day you trusted Christ, your personal Savior, you escaped the wrath of God. But here he's talking about somebody going to, how, they go, how are we? We going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's only one we that can be, the nation of Israel. And that's a tribulation passage that says that if Israel doesn't accept Christ as the Messiah, they're not going to escape. Had nothing to do with the church. Couldn't put it in the church if you stayed up all night. Now I'll show you another one. Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. These are great. These will help you. These will help you. Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for the testimony of those things which were spoken of. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? See that thing? Whose house are we? Now, I, heard, I, I got commentaries at home on the book of Hebrews, and when it comes to this passage, he just takes the thing there and says, now obviously he's talking about the New Testament Christians, and uh, just as Moses was over the Old Testament, Christ is over the New Testament church. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You know what your problem is again? Sorry, it's that black book with gilt edges. Because nowhere in the Bible is the body of Christ ever called a house. Nowhere. Nowhere. Watch my lips. Nowhere. It's called a temple, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It's called a building, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But it is, it's called, it's called, it's called his body, but never called a house. There's only one house in the Bible 
and it's found in Acts, or, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and it is the whole house of Israel. You see, if you just stay with what you know, you can break the thing down. You get creative and leave the Bible. It's like I said before, you can make anything say anything when you don't know what you're talking about. But if you stay with the Bible, it's simply saying Moses in the Old Testament had a house. Christ has got a house. That house is the house of Israel. And of course, the church is never called a house. Called a temple, called a building, but it called a body, but never a house. So you see, that's how you begin to put it down. All right, chapter 3, verse 14. Now here's a great one. Try to put this in. But here again, boy, if you got your little bookmark there that you got this morning if you're a visitor or you had one because you've been around for a while, here it's all on there. I mean, there's a method to my madness. Chapter 3, verse 14. Watch this one. Try to put this in the church. For we are made partakers of Christ. That's good. That'll work. Are you all partakers of Christ? Have you been made a partaker in Christ? Everybody here to say amen? Let me hear a good amen. amen. Oh, that's better than that. Let me hear a good amen. amen. Let me hear a good old Holy Ghost and Fashion Revival amen. Amen. Well, let's finish the verse. For we are made partakers of Christ if, ah, now it's conditional. If what? If you hold if you, if you hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. See what that verse says? That says you're, you were made a partaker in Christ, but you keep it if you hold the confidence unto the end. Now, does that fit into the church? I got news for you. He'll be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to Him. And then you got that little phrase down there, under the end. We've talked about that before in Thursday night Bible study. Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, talks about uh, the end, that end, wherever you find it is the end of the tribulation. Don't take my word for it. Go to Daniel 11.35, Daniel 12.4, Daniel 7.26, 8.19, 9.26, 12.8, 12.9, 12.13, 8.17, 9.24. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 43. I, I love it when I talk that way, but none of them really mean anything, but I just wanted to spit them out to you. They all deal and define the end. The end, wherever you find it in the Bible, is the end of the tribulation period. He that endureth to the end shall be saved, Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. What he's saying there, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning. Who's he talking to? The nation of Israel. They have to endure to the end, and if they do, that's where they get partakers of Christ. It's as simple as that. Can't fit to the church any way, shape, or form. Oh, and then chapter 4. This is a good one. Four, one. Let's, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, and if you should seem to come short of it. Now, there's the rest. That rest, I'll just tell you right now, when you get down in chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 4 and 5, it says this, For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise. That certain place is back there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered in because of unbelief. You know what it's saying? It's saying that the nation of Israel who got it preached to, they didn't get that rest because of unbelief. That rest there is the millennial rest. It's the rest that Israel gets when they go into the millennium. And you know when the millennium is? 
7,000 years, the seventh day, just like I've taught you over and over and over again, laid out in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. But you see, when you don't know how to piece the Bible together with the doctrinal concepts, you're lost, man. You can't put it together. You can't grasp the concepts if you don't see it and put it into play within the context of what it's going. That's not a, a rest of the believer. The day you got saved, you got rest in Christ Jesus, end of the story. But the Jew hasn't, and the Jew won't get it till he gets into the millennium. That here's another great one. Hebrews chapter 9, flip over to that one. 9 verse 28. Now here's a good one. Try to put this into the church. I'm telling you something, folks. You might as well get it down. If you don't rightly divide your Bible, my Bible says rightly dividing the word of truth. You don't learn how to rightly divide that Bible, you're going to be as lost as a golf ball in high weeds. Man, I ain't kidding you. You are never going to figure it out. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto sin. Now try to put that into the church. See that thing? So Christ was one offered to bear the sins of many, first coming of Christ. And unto them that look for him shall appear the second time, second coming of Christ. I'm not looking for the second coming of Christ. I'm looking for the rapture of the church. But I know who is looking for the second coming of Christ. It's the nation of Israel. See how the verse works? Let me break it down for you. All right? It says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Israel saw him the first time. He was on the cross bearing the sins of many. And unto them that shall look for him and appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The second time he comes, Israel is going to see him come back again. This time he's going to have no sin on him. He's going to be the glorified Christ. Revelation chapter 19. Simple as that. Simple as that. And I'm not, I'm the guy that can't put, follow the directions. I can follow that. I'll show you, show you another one. It'll be the last one. Then we'll get into this thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 29. Well, here's a good one. It says in verse 26, For if, if we sin willfully, after that we have the knowledge, received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. I'll, if I had a dollar <coughs> for every time I heard a guy on the radio get up or some evangelist come in and preach or some pastor didn't know what he was doing, get up and tell you and me that if we continue to sin willfully after we are saved, there comes a point where God is not going to forgive you of your sins anymore. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, the first thing is, I've heard him say this, if you willfully sin. Well, I, I got to just speak for myself. I'm 55 years old and I don't know of a time in my life where sin ever snuck up on me. Maybe you're different. John, did they ever sneak up on either one of my Johns there? I got two Johns. John number one, first John, second John. <laughs> Let's pray God send us one more John. We got third John right here. Stand up. Stand up. Yep, yep. It's the shortest book in the Bible. You're all right. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Come on. Excuse me just a minute here. <laughs> hey, it never snuck up on me. I saw sin, saw this, saw sin, saw this, said, see you later, and went with the sin. That's the way it works. 
Didn't sneak up on me ever. I can't ever think of a time that I didn't sin willfully, and neither can you if you're honest. Now, that's not what it's talking about. Look what it says there. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that's Israel in the tribulation period, who gets the teaching of Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses, and the preaching of 144,000, and reject it. There remaineth then no more sacrifice for sins. Because in the tribulation period, if you reject the Messiah, again, you're done. Look at verse 27. But a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now, my friend, all you got to do is take any concordance. Get a strong, that's for strong Christians. Get a young, that's for young Christians. I don't care. And look up these concepts. But a fearful looking for judgment and firing, that is the second coming of Christ. And what it is saying in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 29, it is simply saying that the nation of Israel is going to get a chance in the tribulation period to get the Messiah again. And if they mess this up, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin because he's the last ticket. And the next thing on the docket is the second coming of Christ and a fiery indignation, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Revelation chapter 14, verse 19, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1, and 500 other places in the Old Testament which shall devour the adversary. Who's the adversary? <coughs> First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says it's the devil and his cohorts. The context here has nothing to do with the child of God. It has to do with the nation of Israel. Now those verses, along with many more, and I'm, we, could, we could just pick it apart. We don't have time this morning. But out there, an example of what I'm saying, that it's absolutely impossible to put those into the church age doctrinally, anywhere in church history. And I say again, when the rapture comes, the Jews begin to realize that something's wrong. Remember, the tribulation period runs seven years. Split in the middle by three and a half, then three and a half. And then it hits. And what hits in Matthew chapter 24 is called the abomination of desolations. And they scatter. And how do they find the truth? How do they get now the truth of what they have rejected because the nation of Israel can't get it from an Old Testament. They have to get it from a New Testament because the Old Testament is done away with. And they ain't going to get squat out of that. They're going to have to get it from the New Testament. Now let me give you a scenario. I'm a Jew. I'm in the tribute, and I don't know, this is probably an oversimplification, but it's going to go something like this. I'm a Jew. Antichrist has just started killing everybody. And I'm running out of Jerusalem, I'm hiding in a cellar. And I look around the cellar, and there's a couple other fellers. <laughs> and they're Jews too. And we're talking among ourselves, and they say, what are we going to do? And somebody says, I don't know, man, who they're killing us. I, I, you know, I, 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 heard, I, heard, I heard a guy on the radio one time, he, he was preaching, and I didn't believe it. He was talking about how this was all going to happen, and I don't, you know, I don't figure the thing out. And, and somebody's going to go back there and they say, well, you know what, didn't Daniel talk about some of this stuff? And, and they're going to say, yeah, but man, I don't know what was going on back there. And about that time, somebody's going to say, you know what, I had a Christian friend of mine. You ain't going to believe this. He gave me a Bible. And I never read it. But I grabbed it on my way out. And you know what, I never saw in the New Testament, I never knew this. There was a book there written to Hebrews. That's us, boys. Somebody else is going to say, let me see that. 
Yeah, the Hebrews. Somebody's going to say, give me that. Well, look, here's James. Look at that, James. You know who it's written to? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. That's us. Somebody's going to say, give me that. Look, First and Second Peter. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom in Matthew chapter 17. In Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, he's the apostle of the nation of Israel. Somebody's going to say, give me that. Look, the book of Jude. The book of Jude's all about what's... And you know, from those New Testament books that are written to the Jews, they're going to find out what the answer is. And the key book is Hebrews, and I'm about to show you why. I ain't lying to you. I'm telling you the truth, man. Listen, I'm telling you. You've got to learn to rightly divide that Bible. Now, with that in mind, let's break down this book, and it won't take us long because you've got the tough part right now. But let me just say this to you. I've got to give you this key. The theme of the book of Hebrew is one word. One word. The theme of the book of Hebrew is one word. One word. One word. Found over and over and over and over and over again. It's one word. It is the word better. B-E-T-T-E-R. Not butter. That's not a little guy. Better. 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 The word better. Now here's what it is. And I told you. The book of Hebrews is written to the Jew who missed the rapture. And when he begins to read, he begins to get defined to him what the nation of Israel is to God. And then God, chapter by chapter, shows him that what was in the Old Testament has been replaced by what's in the New Testament. And what is in the New Testament, here comes your key word, is better than what was in the Old Testament. That's why you find it time after time after time after time again. Now I'm going to go through it. He basically shows that Jew that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Why? First of all, the Old Testament was temporary. The New Testament is eternal. The Old Testament was not perfect. That's why when they died, they couldn't go to heaven. They had to go to Abraham's bosom. The New Testament is perfect. That's why when Christ came out of the tomb, took all the Old Testament saints up to heaven. See how easy it is? The Old Testament was incomplete. Every year, that high priest went in, killed the same, not the same, but killed a lamb, threw it on that thing, had to go through the Holy of Holy, put the blood on the mercy seat every year. You know why? Because the Old Testament was incomplete. Now the New Testament, we have one high priest made the sacrifice for sins forever, and he sat down on the right hand of God eternally. See? Everything about the Old Testament was Litton was, was temporary, not perfect or incomplete, and everything about the New Testament is. And that's what he begins to show them. So chapter by chapter, he shows the nation of Israel and also us, but not directly, how everything in the New Testament is better than things in the Old Testament. And we learn from this book how God is going to deal with the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel should respond. And you need to know this because you need to know your Bible, all right? First two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, easy chapters. You know what they are? They deal with the fact that Christ is better than the angels. He says, chapter 1, verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Watch it, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And then he defines the Son. Whom, the Son, He, the Son, hath appointed a God, hath appointed heir of all things, and Christ the Son has all things, by whom He hath made the worlds. 
being made the brightness of His glory, God's glory, and the express image of His person, God, then Jesus Christ, in the first three, four verses, He's showing you is better than anything else. Look at verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels. Why? Because you're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, that the law and the disposition of the law was given to the Israel by the disposition of angels. That's why God used angels in the Old Testament. Two angels showed up with Abraham. Three, but one of them is the Lord. Two angels show up with Abraham. Two angels go to Lot. You find angels popping up. All, you find Michael. You find Gabriel. You find God using angels all through the Old Testament in the disposition of the law to Israel. And then God sends them the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They kill him. They kill him. And this is the, this is the issue of Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. When, when Peter preaches the message in Acts 2, he deals with Israel, Acts 2, 38. He says you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the man you crucified, for the remission of sins. What sins? Your rejection of the angel of the Lord that God hath made better than the angels, and you accepted all the angels did, but you killed my son. And that's why he says, verse 36, this same Jesus which he hath crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. Israel has to understand. And this is why he takes two chapters to explain in great detail how that Israel, or Christ, is better than the angels because in the Old Testament he ministered to Israel through angels. Now he wants to minister through Christ and they killed the one that God sent. And he's showing them that Christ is better than the angels and they crucified the man that was to be their Messiah. So that's chapters 1 and 2, basically. A lot of material in it, but that's what you're dealing with. You'll see it over and over again. He just compares Christ as being better than everything in the Old Testament. And then we jump into chapters 3 through chapter 10. And the overall context of these, the overall breakdown, they deal with the fact that the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament law failed. And it goes through almost every chapter and deals with a different aspect of it. And that the New Testament priesthood is better than the Old Testament one. And this is where when we get into chapter 3, we already looked at this a minute ago. Moses' house was Israel under the law. Christ is son over his own house is Israel in the millennium, you see. When Christ is over his own house, he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, reigning over his house, the house of Israel. And he's saying that it's better in the old, it's better, it's better because in the Old Testament they wandered because of sin and never found any rest. But when Christ came, he offered them rest. Some of them rejected it and crucified him, but there yet remaineth the rest for the people of God, and Israel is going to get that rest in the millennium. And that's why it's better than it was in the Old Testament. Ah, so easy, so easy. Chapter 4, he says in 4.1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We already talked about that. He's saying that in the, in, in the millennial 
covenant with the nation of Israel, they get better promises than they got in the Old Testament. Simply put, he's saying God has given Israel better promises in the New Testament because those promises are found in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they were through Moses. They were through the prophets. But in the New Testament, that's why the Bible says there's one here, one prophet greater than Moses in the Old Testament. It's all talking about when Christ came, God's Son, that He had better promises for the nation of Israel because His covenant is going to be a better covenant with them than the one they had in the Old Testament where they wandered. And they lost that one because of unbelief. Now they got a chance to get it back in Christ. It's so easy. Chapter 5. In chapter 5, he begins to deal with the, compare the Old Testament Levitical priesthood compared with the priesthood of a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Now in chapter 5, he says this, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained from men, for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Now, in chapter 5, you have a comparison of two priesthoods in your Bible. In chapter 5, we start to see how it's laid out. The first priesthood is what we commonly call the Levitical priesthood. It starts with Aaron, Moses' brother. And from Aaron, he had physical sons. Those sons, we know from the book of Leviticus, the book of Exodus, and the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers, those sons perpetuated the priesthood through physical birth. Moses had a son, he became a priest. He had a son, he became a priest. He had a son, he became a priest. Down through the history of Israel, the Levitical priesthood was a literal, physical priesthood that was produced by physical birth. And that priesthood was all dependent on the flesh, men having children and those children being raised up being priests. But you see, there's a new priesthood. Christ established it. And it's typified by a man in your Bible in the Old Testament, back in Genesis chapter 15, uh, 14, Melchizedek. And that's why Melchizedek's priesthood represents Christ's priesthood. Because Melchizedek's priesthood is not physical. It's eternal. Melchizedek wasn't born a priest. Melchizedek was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is an eternal priesthood. And you'll find what it's telling you in chapter 5 that the spiritual priesthood after the order of Melchizedek is better than the literal priesthood from Aaron. That's why you'll find the phrase, the order, the priest after the order of Melchizedek seven times in your Bible because it's a perfect priesthood. Seven being the number of perfection in your Bible. The Old Testament one is represented by a human man with a human line that has to be continued by physical birth. And it is imperfect, verse 2, because the Bible says the priest himself, though he made sacrifices for others, he himself had his own infirmities. But the New Testament priesthood is a spiritual one. And it's continued not by a physical birth, but by a new birth, a spiritual birth that goes on eternally and makes you perfect in Christ where nobody can be made perfect in the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. That's what he's saying. He's showing the nation of Israel that everything in the Old Testament 
is, or excuse me, everything in the New Testament is better than everything in the Old Testament. Then chapter 6. Chapter 6, we have the great chapter on the preservation of Israel in the tribulation period. Chapter 6 simply deals with this. I'll give you the facts. Here's what he's saying. He's saying in the first six verses that Israel once had all that God had for them. That bring you up from Joshua to 2 Chronicles. And then they lost it because of sin. That'd be 2 Chronicles chapter 36. End of the times of the Gentile, time period 606 B.C. You know that. Now he's saying you're out. You had it, and God took it away because of sin. You gave it up. Now the only way to you for to get it back is to go through the tribulation period and endure under the end of the tribulation, Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. Look at verse 8. See, it says there, thorns and briars. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 6. You'll find out who the thorns and briars are. They're Israel. Clearly, plainly, without any problem at all. Look at verse 8. It says, the, it says, end. Look at verse 11. Unto the end. Look at verse 15. Patiently endured. And then right in the middle of that, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herb meat for them whom the dress... What is that talking about? Well, we covered it on Thursday night. There's your former and latter rain that are built around the second coming of Christ in the tribulation period. You couldn't miss it unless you were the Greek and Hebrew scholar. That thing is right on the money, and chapter 6 shows you that Israel's perseverance and why they've got to go through what they go through. Then chapter 7. And chapter 7, again, deals with a better priesthood. And chapter 7 begins to continue to talk about the person of Melchizedek. And this is a chapter that everybody gets whacked out on. I've never understood it. Well, yeah, I understand it. But, I mean, here it is. It says this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings who blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part. Now all this takes place back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Look at verse 3. Here comes the kicker. Here comes the monkey wrench that shorts out the system. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like unto the Son of God with the body of the priest continually. Now everybody takes this, and all of a sudden we just walk off the face of the edge of the earth and never return. Because now we've got this mystical, magical guy back here, and everybody, I, I, I have never read a commentary other than one who ever saw this thing in the right context. Because now we got everybody running around and saying, ooh, here's a picture of Christ in the Old Testament, and Melchizedek must be Christ. Well, that can't be, because a little later on in chapter 7, verse 15, it says that it was a similitude, so it can't be Christ. So we're left with the fact that Melchizedek is a real person. And who he is, we don't have time to get into today, but the Bible lays him out very clearly. Most of you probably already know that. But that's not our issue today. My issue is this. When it says, verse 3, without father, without descent, without mother, without having either beginning of days, it's not talking about, you've got to get it straight. We're not talking about the context, the context, the context, the context, the context, all through here is the priesthood. And what it's saying is that he didn't have any descent, he didn't have any father and mother, as to him being a priest. The Levitical priest had a father, he had a mother, he had a descent, but it was a literal priesthood. As a priest, he has no descent, not as a human being. The context is not Melchizedek the man, the context is Melchizedek the priest. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Look at verse 5. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, through it they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent, all right, now do a nasty thing. Put one finger on the descent in verse 6, and then take the other finger and put it on the descent in verse 3. Got that? All right. Now, with your two eyeballs, draw a line between one descent to the other because it's the same descent. When it says without descent in verse 3, he's defining it in verse 6, but whose descent is not counted from them Receive the tithe, not counted from them, is the Levitical literal priesthood of verse 5. Not talking about that this man who was human was spiritually eternal and didn't have any beginning. It was a literal man who his priesthood had no literal beginning, and it wasn't continued through literal birth. He's comparing the Old Testament literal priesthood of a Levitical priest starting with Aaron, that through a physical birth had to bring priests who had descents, who had mothers, who had fathers, who had a beginning of days, comparing it to the priest after Melchizedek, who is made a spiritual priest and as a priest has no beginning, because it's eternal. If you're saved this morning, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When did that priesthood start? You said, today I got saved. Wrong. That priesthood started in Christ before the foundation of the world began. It was always there. You just got in then. But you were already counted before the foundation of the world. We talked about that, Ephesians chapter 1. Now in chapter 8, <clears throat> if you come down here and you read chapter 8, here's what you got. Chapter 8 is real easy. Because in chapter 8, you'll find that the context here, let's pick it up uh, we don't have time to read it all, but you need to read it all sometime this week when you put it together. Now, let's pick it up here in 8, a, uh, 8, uh, 8, 6. Here it comes. But now hath he obtained, Christ, a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a what? Better comfort covenant. See that thing? There's the word better. Which was established upon, uh-oh, here it comes again, better promises. There's chapter 4. For if that first covenant, Old Testament, had been faultless, then there should be no place to have been sought for a second. See, if the first Old Testament Levitical priesthood and covenant was perfect, there wouldn't be no need for a second one. You know why there had to be a second one? You know why there had to be an eternal priesthood? You know why there had to be a new covenant? Because the first one couldn't get it done. See? That's called now, we're not mad. That's called actuating your message. Read that in a book this week. You actuate. And sometimes you want to make a point, you go like this. See? I'm not impression. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there should be no place that had been sought for the... <coughs> excuse me, second... For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Here it comes. Oh, this is going to hurt. 
Take a deep breath. Hold your ears. When I will make a new covenant with the ha 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 house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's the house going all the way back to Moses over his own, Christ over his own house. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, Old Testament, in the day when I took them by the hand, lead them out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, because they continued not in my covenant, uh-huh, and that's why they lost it, times of the Gentiles, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the, one more time just for the slow class, the house of Israel. After those days, what's those days on your back of your card? Tribulation period. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Millennium. And they shall not teach every man and his neighbor to say, every man and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I never know more. And that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old, old one's gone, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. He's telling them in chapter 8 that the new covenant is going to make with Israel in the millennium. There ain't nothing in the book of Hebrews directly to you. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some great inspirational things that they line up someplace that you can apply indirectly, but boy, you try to match this thing up with New Testament doctrine and you're going to wind up in heresy. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 simply shows this. It simply shows this, because of better promises, because of a better priesthood, because of a better government, Christ is a better sacrifice than the Old Testament bulls and goats. It's as simple as that. Chapter 9 shows the work of the Old Testament priests. In the first nine verses, it talks about the tabernacle, the candlestick, the table, the showbread, and the golden uh, censer, and how that all these things went along with the work of the priest. And he had to do these things all the time, every day, every year the sacrifice had to be made. And all this went on through the, through the centuries. I mean the first hundred years and the second hundred years and on and on and on. Every day as the priesthood worked in that tabernacle, the, work, the priest did the work. And when they died, their sons took over. And then their sons had boys. And that line went on. And they did it over and over. And the sacrifice went on and on and on. And it was incomplete. It was imperfect and it couldn't get eternal life for anybody because it was only temporary till the man showed up that God was going to send them that they killed and the book of Hebrews is written to show them what they got to do. And in verses 11 through 14, it shows the work of Christ as the spiritual high priest. Verse 11, But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, had made, uh, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of, of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered it once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls used of goats uh, and ashes of a heifer, sprinkle of unclean sacrifices and purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, he's comparing what the work of the Old Testament priests to the work of the New Testament priests. And in chapter 10, he moves right along with the same thing. He says in verse 3 of chapter 10, follow me now, 
But in those sacrifices, the Old Testament, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. He had to do it continually every year. Why? Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Wherefore, because what he just said, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body, Christ's body, hast thou prepared me, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, dost thou know a pleasure? And he said, I lo, come in the volume of a book. You got it right here. The Word of God. To do thy will, O God. Look at verse 10. By which we are sanctified through the offering of of the body of Christ once for all and every priest, Old Testament Jewish priest, Roman Catholic priest, everybody else, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Why? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down and read of God, and he completed what the Old Testament left imperfect. Israel has to see that. Then chapter 11, God's great hall of fame. you got all these men, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson, David, Samuel. And all of this chapter deals with the great chapter on faith. There's some great inspirational lessons for us here. There's some great things because you know why? Those men go through their struggles in life just like we do. But what he's saying in chapter, what he's saying in chapter 11 here to the nation of Israel, he's showing the Old Testament saints they are an understanding that they are to they are to keep the faith and they are to follow through with everything like their Old Testament uh, patriarchs and leaders did, and that's why in chapter 12, another great chapter that goes right along with chapter 11, you have a warning to the faithful to endure, endure God's chastisement. He says, in verse, he says in verse 1, oh, this is a great one. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto the Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And how many times, how many times, how many times I've heard, Therefore, we are compassed about a great cloud of witnesses. And that old preacher gets up there and he starts talking about your dear old departed grandmother hanging on the banners of heaven, looking down, cheering you on. How many times I've heard a preacher spend 15 minutes painting out the grandstands of heaven with all the people that were up there that went before, looking over the balcony or looking at some big TV screen, watching what's going on down here in life and going raw, 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 or down there, you know, and all this stuff. Folks, 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 folks. Get your meds. That's not what it's talking about. I hate to do a terrible thing here. I really do. But I'm going to do a terrible thing. I'm going to put this chapter in a context. Look at 12.1. Wherefore. You know what that means when you find it in the Bible? It means what I just said before goes along with this. Wherefore. 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 Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such great cloud of witnesses. You know who those witnesses are? They're the men that you just talked about in, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 11. The witnesses to Israel that they went through what Israel is going through now. And don't you find it strange? Don't you just find it a little strange after you just pick up a little bit of Bible that I told you that this book is about the Jew going through the tribulation period that missed the rapture, and we know what takes place in the tribulation period, and here in this chapter we have 
a cloud of witnesses. Anytime you find that Bible in the word cloud, it's always dealing with the second coming of Christ. And then witnesses. Well, my Bible says in Revelation chapter 7, there's 144,000 of them. You're dealing with a tribulation passage here. You're dealing with a nation of Israel going through the tribulation period, and he's relating back to the Old Testament things, and he says, you've got a cloud of witnesses dealing with the second coming of Christ. And of course, he deals with them on, on the chastisement that they're going through. And there's some things that we can learn from that, because Israel is God's son, you and I are God's son, and many times the chastisement we go through is much similar, but he's not directly laying it out. He's showing you that this great cloud of witnesses has to do with somebody in the tribulation period connect with the nation of Israel, not your dear, dear dog departed grandmother with all due respect and love to her. I'm telling you. Chapter 13, and we're done. Encouragement to the faithful. He says in verse 8, great verse, one of the greatest verses anywhere in the Bible. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. How's that fit in the context here? What he's saying is simply this. He's encouraging the faithful. Remember now, the nation of Israel has missed the, uh, has missed the rapture. They were caught in their own deception. They were, had a form of godliness, but were denying the power thereof. All down through the church age, they were just totally, every time you said the word Christ, they'd turn their head and spit. They crucified him. They were against him. They were against everything in the New Testament. Now suddenly they bought the farm, so to speak, and the man they began to follow as their real Messiah turns out to be the Antichrist, and they begin to be wiped out and killed. And now God encourages them, even though they're in the tribulation, even though in spite of all of God's judgments fallen on them because of their sins, He wants them to understand this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Simply put, the promises of God toward you, the nation of Israel, have not changed. There is a rest, and Israel will get it. But just like every child of God out there, the nation of Israel, be not deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever you reap. That's what you're going to sow. And she is sowing what she reaped. But the end, God is faithful to her, just like God is faithful to you and I, even though you and I and Israel is not faithful. What are you saying? He says, hey, right now you're being caught, kicked sideways from Sunday. You're being hunted. You're being shot. You're being your heads cut off. It seems like everything is deteriorating around you, and that's because of your sin. But the, and God is judging this world. But the bottom line is, take encouragement in this. God is the same today as He was back in Exodus chapter 12, and He wants you to be a nation just as He was before. And this is where it's explained in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11. All the material of God restoring the nation of Israel and found in those two great chapters. He says in verse 6, Remember, the Lord is your help. Don't fear what man can do to you. And the men that are doing to that are the Antichrist and the armies that are running them down. Now let me just, if I could here in closing, and I'm done now, <clears throat> let me just bring this last point to a spiritual application for you and for me. Because there's a lot of parallels between the nation of Israel and us. And I know that directly this book isn't written to me. I know that. And you ought to know that now. Maybe you don't understand it all. Hey, 3586783, I'll be glad to sit down and help you put it together. Thursday night, if you got any questions, bring them to Thursday night. We'll iron it out. <coughs> That's what it's there for. But I'm, I'm just telling you this. There's a lot of similarities. And here's the problem we face as Christians, and it's the same problem that Israel faces. We live in a world, we live in a society, we live in a country, we live in a, in a time where everything's changing. The world's changing, 
Society is changing. Morals are changing. Religions are changing. Teachings changing. Governments changing. Styles are changing. Churches are changing. Methods and programs are changing. And they all change around us. And the truth of the matter is, the principles of God never change. Let me tell you something. Write it down backwards on your forehead so when you look in your mirror, you can read it every time because this thing will kill you. Let me tell you something. Man, with all of his flashy things, with all of his seminars and programs on building churches, have never outdone the way God taught it to be done in the book of Acts. It still works the same way. But you see, when you're in a changing Christianity and a changing society where everything is changing, you get that urge to change with it. And that's what God gave us a book that never changes. And you know what the Christian world does? They want to give you a book that changes every two or three years, you see. I got a book that never changes because the principles of God never changes. And the same principles today are the same principles that they trusted back then that work today. There are no newfangled methods for teaching people the Bible. There are no newfangled ways of building a church. It's hard work. It's dedicated work. And you've got to do it, excuse the cliche, by the book. You've got to do it the only way that it works, and that is doing it from the Bible way just like they did in the book of Acts. There's no seminar I can go to that's going to give me the newfangled way of doing this now that we can do it quicker, better, cheaper. You know what? It takes sweat, it takes tears, and it takes blood. And I've told you before, 90% of it is underground that you never see it. You have to pay the price to do it. There is no shortcut to anything but in a society that is full of shortcuts, in a society that wants to change totally and completely, in a moralistic society that wants to just keep changing, it can get really confusing unless you have an absolute book and you absolutely buy into that book. Having it alone won't do it for you. You have to come to the conclusion, this, when Jesus Christ says He never changes, He never changes through this book. And you stay with it. Then lastly, he says this, Wherefore Jesus, verse 12, also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Talking about his crucifixion outside of, outside of Jerusalem on what is commonly called Gordon's Calvary. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. And you find it two ways here, bearing his reproach and suffering without the gate outside the city. Israel's doing that in the tribulation. And of course, that's why when you study the books of 1st and 2nd Peter and James, you're going to find the themes of those books is suffering. Because Israel now is to bear the reproach of Christ, the man they crucified. And in the tribulation, they suffer and bear the reproach outside the city. They're cast out and chased down by the Antichrist. From an inspirational application, that's your job and my job now, not on one of those parallels. Even though it isn't written directly to me, I make the application through the nation of Israel. Me and my life right now, my Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we saw it when we studied Timothy, that I am to suffer with him now, and I'll reign with him later. Right now, every child of God ought to be bearing that reproach of Christ, not living for yourself, not thinking of yourself, but thinking of him and realizing that just as Israel is going to have to have a time where they pay the price for the price that was paid for them, you and I now have to pay the price
for the price that was paid for our salvation. God asks us to carry the load, go forth unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. And sometimes that's not a very popular thing to do, but that's okay. The principles will get you through. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Well, that's the book of Hebrews. <coughs> Easy book. Well, you just follow the approach that we've already had. Now, we're going to be finished here in a moment, and we'll be on our way. But let me ask you a question. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I don't know where you're at today.